0: Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal, and everybody joining us online. Uh, It's great to be back. We had a couple weeks away as a family just to kind of rest and get recharged. So thank you to everybody who prayed for us. Uh, We're really happy to be back. Uh, Real quick, before we jump into this morning's teaching, let me just draw your attention to a couple things that are coming up in the next few weeks and into the fall. As of next Sunday, September 6th, we are back to physically gathering, uh, finally. And uh, I'm excited about it. I'm glad that we are finally there. Um, we're right now finalizing some of the protocols, uh, some of the cleaning schedule, how to get different ministries set up, talking with different volunteers and team leaders so that we can make everything safe um, and with the proper care uh, so that we can gather again. Um, so that's going to be kind of the beginning of phase one for us as we go into September and we're really just going to kind of strip everything back, keep it very simple, kind of have unplugged analog church together. Uh, but it's going to enable us to have that first phase of getting into the building and actually doing, um, having corporate gathering and worship together. Um, For those of you who are not able to come um, or not yet ready to come to our gathering, we will be streaming uh, our Sunday services at 6 p.m. on Sunday evenings. So that will be made available to you as well uh, by the end of the day on Sunday. Uh, But let me just encourage Uh, As many of us to be, who are able to come, please consider coming. It's so important, especially in this season where we have kind of this growing, uh, you know, lack of proximity and community together. And many of us are feeling kind of the pressure and isolation of that, of that isolation. Um, so I just want to encourage you to, to make it a priority. And as long as you are able to, uh, physically, health wise, please uh, make it a priority to come out. Secondly, I just want to let you know of uh, kind of what this different series that we have planned for the next uh, few months uh, are. For September, we're going to have a series called Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is one of those Christian teachings and doctrines of the Trinity that is so complex, so mysterious, yet so true and needing to be truly understood for us. So with everything going on in the world, with all the different issues and things that are kind of. Pulling for our attention, um, it's going to be great to get into the fall and just draw our eyes and fix our gaze on who God is, how God has revealed Himself, um, and thinking about things like if God is love, well, we can't understand God being love unless we understand God as truly triune, as one God, as three persons, as one essence in this self-giving community of love. And so that's what we wanna do. We wanna see God clearly because we can't love a God that we don't know. And so that's gonna be our, our jump into the fall. And then for the rest of the fall to the end of the year, we're gonna be um, going, getting into a series called True Stories. And we're gonna walk through the parables. We're gonna do exactly that. Um, the parables, if you don't know, is one of the least kind of understood mediums for storytelling. And Jesus uses it approximately a third of the time that he teaches anything. He speaks about it in parable. So that means he tells stories. He tries to communicate truths by telling true stories. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through those parables, um, kind of the main most popular parables, break them down verse by verse, and then apply them today to see how they kind of push into our lives today. Uh, We're going to cover so many different topics because the parables do. Uh, Money and generosity and stewardship, uh, justice and grace and love of neighbor, uh, justification and faith, uh, parenting, marriage, mission, discipleship, eternity, heaven, hell, judgment, prayer. It's all there. It's all in the parables. And so I'm really looking forward to that series as well as we get into the fall and take us through to the end of the year. And last but not least, before we jump into this morning, I just wanna thank all of you who uh, made it a priority to give towards our Beirut Relief. Um, support. We ended up raising $6,000. So $3,000 from you and $3,000 from the church um, to match every dollar to go towards the relief efforts that are happening in Beirut by teams in Lebanon on the ground, churches and leaders trying to serve and bring some kind of restoration to uh, Beirut and the city and those who have lost everything um, in in light of the explosion that has happened. So thank you so much for that and prioritizing that. Uh, We're really glad as a church to be able to support Things globally um, as well. Uh, So let me pray for us before we jump into this morning. Um, Father, we thank you that we can be generous and give because you are a generous God, that you're not stingy, you don't hold back what you have, that you actually lavish us and throw at us more than we can even imagine in grace and mercy and love. And so this morning, I pray that as we look back to you, as we get into your word, that Spirit, you would speak to us that you would apply your words to us and that it would change us, that we would be able to respond well in worship and see you more clearly, especially as a church, that moving back into gathering together, that you would just use this as a time to just stoke uh, that, that love, that faith, that commitment to you and to your church. We love you and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, So we're going to do something this morning. We're just going to get into um, a few verses in the letter of Ephesians. And this is a standalone message just to kind of like catapult us into the fall. Um, And Ephesians, if you don't know, is a first century letter that is kind of called like the crown and climax of the Apostle Paul's theology. And what it was, was it, it was actually a circular letter. Ephesians was written to a a series, just a a bunch of different churches in and around this ancient city of Ephesus. And Paul and his church planting teams actually planted those churches. And then we have this letter written and circulated to remind these churches of some of the things that they need to know. And the whole book of Ephesians that we call it now is laser focused on two main things, Jesus, who Jesus is, and his church, who the church is. And it's one of the most clear kind of concise like explicit descriptions of what the gospel is followed by the implications of the gospel. So here's the gospel, here's who Christ is, here's what he's accomplished, and then here's how it changes everything about us and our lives as the church, and here's how it shows up in real life. Um, And just to give you a bit of context, the ancient city of Ephesus was this massive kind of booming metropolis, very fast-paced kind of avant-garde city. And it was a port city just right at the Mediterranean Sea. And so think, think kind of New York, right? A lot of commerce, a lot of culture forming and culture shaping happening that just kind of like went out and radiated through the ancient world from Ephesus. Uh, a lot of tourism, many attractions to come and see. There were, I mean, Archaeologists estimate that there was about 50 different temples to different gods in Ephesus alone. So you're talking about a very spiritual, multi-ethnic kind of um, syncretized city that is just like this diverse melting pot of all sorts of different things, ideologies, worldviews, and people, cultures, socioeconomic brackets, all sorts of things. Uh, One of the most famous things that was in the city of Ephesus is the temple of Artemis. And it was actually one of the, the wonders of the world uh, in the ancient world. And Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And it, they, they had one colosseum that actually seated a temple that seated 20,000 people. So we're talking about like a megachurch to Artemis. Um, uh, Ephesus also housed the biggest library in the world at that time. So it's a culture that, that prized knowledge. It it prized um, spirituality and knowledge simultaneously. Not much different than our post-modern Western milieu today. And that's what I want to draw your attention to, just to give you a bit of context and situate us. Because it was a city that really prized a culture that really prized tolerance, autonomy, uh, self-expression, and especially sexual exploration. Um, the, the different cult prostitution that happened in temples where you would literally go and part of your worship was to give your body over to prostitutes and engage in sexual acts. Not different than today with the, just the proliferation of pornography and strip clubs and abortion mills where everything is just kind of given over to the God of sexuality and sexual pleasure. Ephesus was killing it. They were, they were doing all that. And also there was this spiritual abuse and this false teaching that started to rise up in and through Ephesus and start to kind of affect the churches there. And so we hear an amazing story, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament of this these these brothers called the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19, uh, who try to kind of ride out on the coattails of the church, start teaching like a weird fake gospel, try to like imitate who God is for the sake of, of gain for themselves. And they end up chased out uh, naked and beat up by a demon-possessed man. Awesome story. Check that one out, right? Too bad that doesn't happen more often today, right? Um, but that that's the kind of thing that was happening in and around the city of Ephesus. Now that's the city, But now the church, that's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna look at what Paul is writing to the church in the midst of that craziness, in the midst of all of that happening in Ephesus. The crazy thing about Ephesus and the church in Ephesus is that we actually know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. And that's really, really fascinating. We know more about it because in Acts 19, we see that it's planted. We hear all of what happened with Paul and all of the different leaders that go and plant the church. Um, And then 30 years later, we have this letter. That's written to the church in Ephesus. Also, 1st and 2nd Timothy and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, other letters in the New Testament, are written to the leadership in churches in Ephesus. And then, of course, famously in Revelation chapter 2, we have a warning to the church in Ephesus to not forsake their first love and get back to the gospel and focus on Christ. So we have this very like diverse, uh, dynamic church church in Ephesus, and we have all these different strands of communication recorded in the New Testament about what is going on, not only in the city and in the culture, but also in the church. And what we do know about some of the things that are happening is that there is great racial, ethnic, cultural... Uh, diversity in the city and in the church. There is a a very radical clash of belief systems and worldviews. There are very distinct socioeconomic brackets um, that are coming and very different backgrounds of those who now make up the church. So we're talking about people that really have nothing in common from a worldly kind of like fleshly level uh, at the surface level and all they do have in common is Christ. And then they are one in Christ because of those things. And so all these surface things, um, Paul writes to speak into that because the church was having a hard time and needing to work really hard to fight for unity in that diversity. A unity of thought, a, university, uh, a unity of thinking, a unity of background and understanding, like their past being so radically different, an ethnic and racial and socioeconomic difference, made up in the church, and then different clashes of worldviews that they used to have that are now coming together and they're all part of the church. So the reason why I picked pick this text is because today, culturally, right now in this moment, the church, our church at Reach Montreal, but the wider church in the West has an amazing opportunity to actually practice unity in diversity in a culture that has no idea how to bring about that kind of unity through the different diversity that we're seeing. And right now, if you're paying attention at all, whether it's politics, whether it's race relations, whether it's, it's anything at all that's posted by anyone on anything, right now we are, are locked in a polarization of people groups and identity and identity politics that cannot be united apart from the uniqueness of the gospel. That's, that's the hope that we have. And that's why Paul writes to the church in Ephesians because they're working through that too. They're trying to do the hard work of unity in diversity and that can't be offered anywhere else except for around the hope of the gospel. So Ephesians chapter two, verse 11 through 12. Watch how Paul starts this section. Therefore, remember, okay? He's re- telling them, remember that this is true, that at one time, Before all this, you Gentiles, speaking specifically to a group of people, non-Jews, in the flesh you were called the uncircumcision, you were called this name, by what is called the circumcision. So there's factionalism, there's these two groups, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, and he repeats it again, that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now pause for a second. I love how Paul starts because he starts with with therefore. And every time there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And so everything that came before these verses, all Paul is doing is he's reminding them that regardless of whether you, you were a Gentile or a Jew, right, whatever socioeconomic background, whatever worldview you're coming from, whatever your past life looked like, you are now, you were spiritually dead, but now you're alive in Christ. You were incapable of making your way to God and getting a relationship with God, but now you're alive. That because of his immeasurable riches of his grace, he says, you are now saved by grace through faith, not by who you are, your skin color, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic bracket, how you vote, whatever it is. None of those things were able to bring you and I to God and be reconciled to God. Only the gospel does. So he starts there and then he says, therefore, because that's true, remember where you're coming from remember who you are remember who god is and this is really key because our main problem uh, is not moral our main problem is not ethical our main problem is not political it's not economic it's not racial and the world thinks it's any any and all of those things at the same time and the gospel comes and says No, no 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 it's not any of those things our core problem is spiritual that we are alienated from, vertically from God and horizontally from one another. That there's nothing in human terms that can reconcile radically different people into something and unite them except the gospel. So the gospel reconciles us vertically to God. And then the outworking of this is that it reconciles us horizontally to one another above every difference we could possibly come up with. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel is capable of doing and it's not easy, but it is what it does when we work towards it. And a few verses before this, Paul says that that you in Christ are the workmanship of God created for good works. So we can't just say that we're reconciled to God vertically and then there not be a horizontal movement of what it looks like to be reconciled to one another. We can't just talk about the future hope that we are, will one day re- be realized and and one in Christ but then not do anything about fighting for that unity and oneness in Christ now and those two sit together and they work together why because we're his workmanship created for good works and today in such a polarized divided time what better work what what better good work could we do as the church actually show that we can be united over and above differences that are made by human hands in flesh. And I love that Paul starts there and that he turns the corner and just says like, hey, I'm gonna unpack for you, this is the gospel, this is what's true and I'm gonna show you that by grace, through faith, nothing you can do that's gonna impress God, nothing you can do that can earn God's favor and love. It's a free gift, He, he lavishes it on you and now he's gonna turn the corner and say, hey, the church is gonna be a train wreck unless we figure that out. And I think the church in Ephesus was a train wreck. Like they were really working through these things. And so from all the different things that are said to the church in Ephesus throughout the New Testament and through the leader, to the leaders of the church, we can see there were some serious issues going on. There was some serious division. There were some serious misunderstandings and talking past each other. And there was some serious factionalism that was threatening unity in the church. And right here, we see two main groups that Paul talks to in particular. You noticed the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Now, there's a lot that could go into there about the Old Testament covenant of circumcision. We don't have time to do that, but that was just talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And now, they, they could not be any more different. Okay, we gotta get this, because this is really important, that the Jews were kind of the religious elite who saw themselves as not just spiritually superior, but also racially superior to non-Jews. And then, we have that group, meeting and coming together in the church with a bunch of pagan Gentiles, the kind of people who are like, well, I'm spiritual, not religious, right? And leaving their appointments at with temple prostitutes and casting spells on their neighbors, coming in and getting saved. And then that's the church. Like, can you imagine their small groups? Can you imagine the discussions? Can you imagine the what are you? Like, what are you, what? You know? And in Acts 19, we literally see that, that a whole bunch of Gentiles get saved in Ephesus, non-Jews. And then they have like a, a book burning ceremony. They take all their magic books and they burn them to say, we don't need these anymore because we've met the true God. Amazing. Like, and, and this is the church. So like their city groups, their small group discussion. I, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for what in the world they were talking about. And the amount of times that they just kind of like, okay we're one in Christ, we're, we're united, but I don't get you. I don't understand. Help me understand you because according to the world, we should hate each other. According to the, to, to the world's classification of, of race and ethnicity and socioeconomic and culture, we should, we should have nothing to do with one another. And today, that's all the world is gonna offer you and I. That's all the world is going to be able to do is try to use politics, try to use identity politics, try to use race and ethnic lines and say that, that we just cannot be reconciled. the gospel shows up and says, you must be reconciled because if you are reconciled to God through Christ, you must be reconciled to one another over and above every single difference we could possibly think of. But unity doesn't just happen. It's not just, well, we're reconciled to Christ. So mm, it'll be nice when we get there. Unity actually takes work. Our natural default is division, not unity. And so even as followers of Jesus, we, we struggle to, to work towards that, to fight against factionalism, to try to get around the gospel and not allow othering to happen, to not create categories even theologically in the church of us and them and then cause division and just kind of like lob criticisms at those who are not us because it's them, right? We do this all the time. And right now we're seeing a radical kind of like factionalism rise up and and COVID and all sorts of things have have contributed to this, all the things going on in the world right now. But right now we have this opportunity as the church to see this for what it is, to actually acknowledge it and say, yeah, yeah, I have that tendency. I have that tendency to to, to draw lines that God doesn't draw. I have a tendency to to make these kind of factions and, and these little kind of cute little theological groups that just like lob criticism at others, right? Or whatever it is, whatever ideology can creep in. And Paul shows up and just goes, no, no, you Jews, you Gentiles, you couldn't be any more different in every single way. But now you are united because you are one in Christ. Like that, that's over, it's gone. And so we can't miss how different those two groups are, how different they are. One commentator um, I, I saw recently said, a study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, hear that, none of today's social distinctions, I don't care which one you come up with, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, or our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. So just take the unrest of this week that we saw come up. Doesn't touch the hate and animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Doesn't touch it. And Paul's words to them are profound, profoundly countercultural, profoundly counter our human nature. Because he's coming to them and he's saying, like, like, I know you have every reason to be against each other, but now you have the one reason that matters to be with each other, to be united on the things that actually matter, not fleshly categories made by hands, he says, right? Now, there's, there's crazy things in the ancient world where there, we see this kind of like deep-seated hate between Jew and Gentile, radical, like ethnic and spiritual hate and division between each other. Um, but just a couple of examples just to show you how deep this goes. Like it was actually illegal for a Jew to help a Gentile woman, a Jewish woman to help a Gentile woman give birth because it was seen as bringing another heathen into the world. Um, there was a belief that Gentiles were used to fuel the fires of hell while well, the Jews just kind of sat and like, yeah, look at us. We're the chosen ones. There was a Jewish prayer that was prayed daily in the synagogue. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. And then they would continue with whatever laundry list of things they wanted to follow up on. And then, it, 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 the Gentiles don't get off, off the hook. They too had a very, very um, divided view of anyone that is not with them or against them, right? So kind of secular, godless, hedonistic worldview that it's like, here's, here's who, the, who we are. If you go against that, cancel you, right? Cancel culture. And Plato, like even Plato, the great Gentile Greek thinker said, any non-Greek person is my enemy by nature. So, so talk about this radical kind of solidifying of an identity that is based on whatever fleshly category you want to give it. But this, this was a, a boiling point of culture in the city of Ephesus. And Paul shows up and he makes quite the statement. Makes quite the statement about the truth and beauty of the gospel. And he says that, that all of those categories, all of those divisions that we're running around talking about, they're made in flesh by hands. And what had happened is the Jews had taken the physical sign of, of circumcision and, and a social kind of ethnic trait as well. And they've made it a spiritual divider that, that dictated value of human beings. And this is what religion and secularism both do, okay? So Jews and Gentiles were both doing the same thing, but from a radically different worldview. And today, this is exactly what religion and secularism both do, It creates othering. It creates us and them. What faction are you a part of? Because if you're not with us, you are against us. If you don't vote, think, believe, and post like us, you're out, we're in. That is all religion and secular modern society is going to offer you and I. That's all it's gonna do. And it's gonna continue to just fuel this fire of division and animosity and hate. And it's not gonna offer diversity and unity. It's not going to. In the name of diversity, in the name of trying to do that, they cannot do it because the gospel is the only thing that shows up and says there's no more dividing lines, no more dividing lines by flesh in hands. Like there's no other dividing lines. In other words, this is what the gospel shows up and says that race, culture, socioeconomic status, theological views have no impact whatsoever on how God sees us or gives us any privileged status with God or each other. It just doesn't. So when you and I are tempted to give special status to ourselves, to others, to a certain people group based on any of these, any of these categories, we have drawn a line of insider and outsider that God does not. And Paul's saying, remember that you were an outsider. Remember that you were cut off, that you were, We're the them, and I've brought you home to become an us. I've brought you home and given you a new identity, one that is not made by flesh and hands. It's not based on any of those categories anymore, that you are in Christ first and foremost. That's your primary identifier. Nothing else is your primary identifier. And this is why all throughout the New Testament, we see this category of in the flesh and then in Christ and, and, and always, it's in the flesh, in Christ. And they're constantly put pitted against each other because you can't have a category and an identity built on anything in the flesh and also have an identity that is rooted in Christ. You can't. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, especially in this polarized culture, if your primary identity is rooted in any fleshly, human, secular category, you have forgotten about grace. You have abandoned the gospel. And it's not a Christian view. It's not a Christian perspective. So I don't care what it is. I don't care what what category you could come up with. If it is not a secondary category of identification that takes the backseat to the primary identifier of being in Christ, it is not a Christian perspective. And we're guilty of this. We are. As the church at large in the West right now, we are very guilty of this. And for us as the church right here in community in Montreal, we need to be very careful and be very cautious that we don't allow this to seep in and just kind of creep up on the way that we see one another because our witness is on the line. That's what's on the line. That our witness to the gospel, our mission for those who don't know Jesus is on the line because the world is watching. The world is watching. If we have nothing different to offer them than going out and doing the exact same thing that they're doing and being just as radically different, being just as radically divided, what hope are we even offering? And that's what Paul's talking about. And I think Paul, you know, later in Galatians 3, again, we, we won't turn there, but he says, in Christ Jesus, right? Like, so again, in Christ, that's your identity. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And then he goes on to say, so because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because you are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, so that doesn't mean we get rid of black, white, Young, old, conservative, liberal, homeschooled, public schooled, educated, uneducated, middle, upper class. Those are still real categories. They are. And and, and some of us in our circumstances and the way we've been raised and where we've been raised and how we've been raised, um, that that is important, but it's not primary. And so this is, this is what this text is pushing at us. We have to be careful not to, as followers of Jesus who are in Christ, take a secondary identifier and make it primary because there is neither no, no, no more Greek or Jew, no slave and free, no more male or female. Those are not our primary identifiers. And so today, this, this, I mean, this could not be more relevant. So who is it for you? What is it for you? Like, like, what issue, uh, what view, viewpoint or perspective, or what position or political party or ideological belief or public figure that you must agree with or not? Like, who is it for you? What, what is it for you? Take your pick. Like we got an endless line of things right now that we could divide over. Like it's just constantly. And I'm not even gonna, like I don't even need to get into the specifics because they're just, they're so relevant and so evident in our face that I don't even need to list them. But whatever it is, a political persuasion just voting this way. We have leaders coming out and saying that if you don't vote this way in the presidential election in the US that you're outside of the will of God. You're just like, What? Right, like conservative or, 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 or whatever it is. Like these different categories that we make up. I don't even want to get into it. Um, but, but this is the thing. Like this, this is the, we take our pick of these things and we make them a primary identifier and we lose the power of the gospel to unite. We lose the power of diversity still being who we are, but primarily having that unity in who we are because of who Christ is. So one of the things I did over the last two weeks um, is I got off social media altogether all of my social media platforms. And I'm telling you, one of the most restful things I could do is to stop looking at this constant stream of polarizing statements, memes just criticizing people, and people sarcastically just, just throwing criticism at other people. And it was amazing to see kind of my, my thought world, my, my heart world, how, how clear it became on, on what, what is actually important and, and how I actually should be thinking and, and thinking about others and loving neighbor regardless of who they are, regardless of what they think, regardless of the hatred that we should have for each other, right, right, according to according to culture right now. And it was amazing. So I would just encourage you, man, like get get off of it. Get off social media for a time. Just rest. Rest and get, get away from that stuff so that you can get clarity again. The, the latest news craze is not gonna help you strive towards unity and oneness in Christ. It's just not. It's gonna do the opposite. And... So what Paul does here, he just shows us the antidote to this. Here's where we'll kind of apply a couple things. The default condition of division, it's like, well, how do we, how do we solve that? How do we connect with people? How do we actually connect with one another? People who are radically different than us. And he moves on in, chapter, in, in verse thir- 13 through 16. Watch what he says. But now, everything's changed, right? So remember you were like this. Remember that was true about you. And it is still true about those who don't know Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you were the other have been brought near proximity by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is, the person of Christ is, who has made us both one, taken these differences, made us one and has broken down in his flesh, his own body, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new race, one new person in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I I just, I love these verses because there's so much there. But notice that he says, but now this is true in Christ. Currently, not just future, currently, but it comes out and it's proven by how we move towards each other. And what the work of Christ does is it takes outsiders, which is everyone, and he makes them insiders. And I love the language of being brought near. We talk about this often, the idea of proximity, actually cultivating empathy, that you can't love someone from afar you can't understand someone by just being away from them and not hearing them well that there's something about proximity that draws us into someone else's situation into their thinking into their experience that then cultivates empathy empathy smashes apathy and also creates unity and that's the beauty of this that it's proximity that because we've been brought near, that God came to us to get us and he came near, that then we've been brought near to him and each other. And I love the mental picture of just like breaking down, dividing walls of hostility. That's like, in in the language of the Greek, it's it's violent. Like it's like demolishing these walls, right? It's actually going through and uh, violently just smashing and dissolving and completely removing any wall or barrier that could exist between us. That he does it between God and us, but then he goes and smashes all walls, dividing walls of hostility between us. And the mental picture for the first century audience would have immediately been Herod's temple because in the first century, Herod's temple, beautiful, huge, immaculate temple. There was a huge wall, huge, 30 feet tall, that separated the Jewish court from the Gentile court. And there was this huge wall. And on the, there was inscriptions like graffiti, ancient graffiti on this wall, threatening entrance from the Jews saying, if you as a Gentile come in, we're gonna kill you, like you're dead, right? So there's actually death threats written on this wall. And when Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, mainly Gentiles, he's saying, remember that wall? Yeah, that wall doesn't, It's not there anymore. Now you have access, we all have access because Christ has broken down that wall. That wall is gone, that we have access to come in and all be together. There's a, a ground zero now in the presence of who God is. And then he talks about being one new man, that Christ, one new man, one new race, one new body, one new person, that there's not different factions anymore. There's not any of this anymore, that we're, that we're one, which means, doesn't mean that we don't have those identifiers, those different ethnic, socioeconomic, those realities, those are still real. But what it does mean is that we are Christian first, that we are in Christ first. Everything, every other thing is second, that I'm not a white Christian, I'm a Christian who's white. That, that, that we're not identifying ourselves by our, our vocation and our career and our education and our, our, our income and, and what neighborhood we live in and what culture we're from, that those are secondary to our identity in Christ and it makes a lot of difference because it grounds us in this reality of the gospel that every other identifier you have and that is true about you, none of them lead. None of them take the lead for a Christian anymore. They don't because we're one new person. We're not one new identity in Christ because that wall has been broken down. Those walls are gone. And how did Jesus kill this hostility? How did he do it? Well, by shedding his blood. So again, this violent kind of imagery of of this, this violence that is done to him by his body tearing apart, he has brought us together, right? So his body being torn apart creates a new body and it restores and reconciles people who are very different, who are torn apart and brings them back together. I love that. I love that it says that he killed hostility through the cross. So it's, it's the death of death in the death of Christ that all that stuff dies because hostility dies at the cross because God enters into our situation and lays his own life down so that that is gone. And I love that it's the cross. Right? Like it's not the resurrection. It's not, it's not an Easter sermon. It's a, it's a Good Friday sermon. That This is about the crucifixion. So, so why the cross and not the resurrection? Why, why is it the cross that reconciles us and not the resurrection that reconciles us? Why? Well, because kneeled at the cross, desperately in need of forgiveness and mercy and love from the God who created us. There's now no more one-upmanship. There's no more factionalism allowed. There's no more moral high ground there that we're all there, broken people needing forgiveness, kneeled in front of the broken savior. And what that does is it rehumanizes all of us because it humanizes us and it makes us who we are. It restores who we are as human beings and what we were created for. So it's at the foot of the cross that we are united because we have a need for a savior. And that, that's just repentance, that we all understand that we come and we say, no, no, but I, I, need, I need a savior. I can't, I can't do this by myself. I can't earn God's favor. There's nothing I can do. There's no activism, no causes I can be a part of, no money I could give. None, none of that make me right with God. None of it, my perfect theology, whatever it is, whatever we think that that's the thing, none of that makes us right with God. It is kneeled at the cross, at the foot of the cross, united because we need a savior. We need to be rescued from this. And if there's a moment right now in our culture that we need rescuing from the other solutions and other options that our culture is giving us to say, this is what's gonna fix us. This is what's gonna fix culture. This is what's gonna fix the economy. This is what's gonna fix whatever it is. It's right now. We need an alternative. And this is the alternative that that unity is possible, but it's through understanding that it, it comes from the admission that we need a savior, that we're kneeled at the foot of the cross, looking at a broken savior who was broken for us so that we may be healed. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of what Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus about because they need to be reminded of it. And you and I need to be reminded of it every day, every day, multiple times a day, because the default lean, the drift of our heart is towards division. It's towards partiality. It's towards these categories made by flesh and human hands. And we're called back to oneness in Christ. And still with our diversity. Still with our distinction. Absolutely. That's the beauty of that. But it's unity in diversity. So a couple things as we apply and wrap up. Number one, unity doesn't mean uniformity. Okay, those are very different. Biblical unity, gospel unity does not mean uniformity. The goal is never... To kind of have churches that just have theological clones or, or whatever it is, or homogeneous uh, churches culturally, who, uh, where everybody looks, thinks, sounds, s- sings and votes the same. Like that is never the goal. And it, as, as a matter of fact, if that happens and it doesn't, there, there's a church that doesn't have this diversity in a diverse city, then there's a problem. There's a radical problem in the church. Now, I'm not saying like if you live in the prairies and you're out in Regina or something and you're like, well, where's all the ethnic diversity? It's like, well, there isn't any, right? Yeah, that, that, so you can't have this be true everywhere, but what you can have is diversity in any way that reflects the diversity of your context. So the goal is never uniformity. It's diversity and unity. And here's why that's beautiful. Because diversity and unity is our future. It is the future of the church. It is this eschatological future promise that unity and diversity is our, it's guaranteed. So if you don't like it now, uh, I don't know how much you're gonna enjoy our future eternity. I don't know how much you're gonna enjoy heaven. Like Revelation 7, 9, there's a beautiful vision that, that John, the apostle John has. And it's this, this number of people that he, he couldn't even number. So a crowd no one can number. That's good news. There's going to be a lot of people there worshiping Jesus. There'll be a lot of people who know Jesus and spend eternity together. That's really good news. Every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages before the Lamb and throne shouting together, shouting together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's our future. That is our future promise. It is guaranteed. Guaranteed. You see, it's the posture kneeled at the cross today that secures our posture of standing before God's throne in the future. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. Wholly united, diverse in our unity, but only for and about Christ and being one. That is what we have to look forward to. That is the future promise of what the gospel does today. And what does this do for us now? Well, it radically changes how we see each other. It should, and it does when we understand that. So what, what ends up happening is rather than see our differences that are real, real differences as barriers, we'll, we'll see them as, as displays of diversity. We'll see them as opportunities for growth. And we'll see it as a foretaste of a renewed, this, this ama- amazing renewed unity that we're moving forward towards in the new heaven and new earth. And it also means that if that's true, that we can't hide behind or, or weaponize our, our skin color or our ethnicity or our socioeconomic privileges or the community we live in and because we're afraid or we just want to insulate ourselves because it's easier, we can't do that anymore because we're actually compelled to move outwards to the other and actually move out and pursue unity with those who are truly different than us because of and for the fame of Christ. So listen, today there's a lot that we could disagree about. There's a lot that the church is disagreeing about. There's a lot that we could divide over. But working through those things and seeing those as opportunities to have good discussion, loving, understanding, empathetic discussions to understand where each other are coming from and just being able to say, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, we love the word of God, we love people. That's settled, so now help me understand. I don't get where you're coming from. I don't quite understand your perspective. Give me your your glasses. Let me sit, walk in your shoes. Let me sit in your seat and understand where you're coming from. Why? Because I still love you, even if we disagree. So that that diversity is a reflection of and a movement towards unity. That's what's made available to us in the gospel. And that's what we need to practice. And second and finally, unity is not optional. this is what I want us to see as we close. Unity is not optional, it's commanded. There's certain things in the Bible that are like, oh, that might be helpful. That might lead to fruitfulness or flourishing. And then there's other things that are commanded. These are not things that are just kind of suggested, like extracurricular activities. But unity is actually vital for the mission of the church. And we don't have time, but in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he prays for his disciples, unity is really the theme of his prayer, that we would be one. That way we'd be in the world, not of the world, because we're united in him. And, and he leaves us with, with the peace that only comes from him so that we can go out into a world without peace and go out and actually disrupt that, disturb all of that by offering peace. And so unity is not optional, it's commanded. It's one of the strongest witnesses to the power of the gospel. That unity in diversity is one of the most powerful witnesses to the gospel. And that's what Paul does exactly in two chapters later in in chapter four, watch what he does. I therefore urge you, because this is true, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So walk, that, that word is live. Live your whole life out in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, like putting up with these differences for the sake of love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace eager to maintain. I love that. And then he goes on and says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So much could be done. I could just start a second sermon now on that text, but here's the point. Paul turns the corner, says this is already true in the gospel, but now we have to walk it out. Now we actually have to live in line with that call on our life. And it's not optional. It's a command. It's not extracurricular for kind of like, Super spiritual Christians, whatever that is. It's for all of us ordinary Christians following Jesus in our ordinary rhythms, in our ordinary lives, in our ordinary weeks, that we are to pursue this kind of unity, that you and I actually have a responsibility and a mandate and a call to be a united people in a divided world. To be a reconciled people in an alienated culture, to be a peacemaking people in a chaotic, violent world, to be a hopeful people in a pessimistic and hopeless world, that we 're called to that, that we 're commanded to do it, and Church, it is so damaging to our witness when we profess to be Christians. And then as professing Christians, go and speak and act and tweet and think like everyone else who doesn't know Christ. So let me put it to you and ask, in what ways are you practicing oneness? Practicing it. Remember, it doesn't happen by default. How are you practicing unity? How are you practicing diversity? Are you making space at your dinner table, your couch, on your porches for diversity? Are you making space in your social circles? Are you making space in what you read and who you listen to and who you follow? Or is there factionalism there and you're not even being exposed to diverse thought, diverse perspectives, diverse thinking? Who, who could it be that you could actually move towards and practice this kind of unity, practice this kind of diversity? Because Paul right here tells us to be eager to maintain it eager to maintain unity. And that word eager, it, 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 it requires urgency. It's a, it's a quickness. There's immediate action to maintain unity. And, and this maintenance requires constant attention. You can't just kind of like do it once and then like just float around and hope that it happens again. But that we actually have to be eager to maintain this unity. It means we run toward, not away from, signs of division. That if there's feelings right now of like, oh man, we're not on the same page. It's like I run at that so that we have conversation and we get around the gospel to figure out how we see things differently so that we can be united in the gospel. Um, I'll leave you with this. Gavin Ortlin in his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, he does a, a beautiful job just kind of going through different categories of things that are worth like dying about, right? The, the, the prim- primary categories of hills that we're, we should die on as Christians. And then there's all these other secondary and, and tertiary categories that really, the, we can have diversity of thought in these things and still be unified in the things that truly matter. And here's what he says. I'll leave, them, leave these words with you. Pursuing the unity of the church does not mean that we should stop caring, caring about theology but it does mean that our love of theology should never exceed our love of real people. And therefore, we must learn to love people amid our theological disagreements. Disagreements over even relatively minor doctrines, ideas, and teachings can cause untold destruction when approached in an attitude of entitlement and dismissiveness. When someone approaches theological disagreement with a self-assured haughty, that's proud spirit that has only answers and no questions, conflict becomes virtually inevitable. Friends, this is how he he ends his plea with us. The unity of the church was so valuable to Jesus that he died for it. If we care about sound theology, let us care about unity as well. Church, we at Reach Montreal have an amazing opportunity to respond to that, to move out as a unit, united outwards into a fragmented and fragmenting culture. And I know we're tired and I know with COVID and all the different things that are going on, we're tired, but it is not the time to kind of sit back and lick our wounds. It's the time to be united, to allow the church to actually be a body, to bring anything that we do have, even in our tired state and allow Jesus to do it as he empowers and sends out the church to do the work of unity and diversity in a world that has no idea how to find it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you bring us home. You bring us near. You break down, you kill the walls of hostility that exist. And your invitation is open to all of us. I just pray for each of us that we be reminded that we are the ones who are called to you and that we get to respond to that, that your grace and your mercy invites us to know who you are and to be reconciled back to you so that, Lord, we could be reconciled to one another and that, Lord, the church would be called out and pushed out into culture with the ministry of reconciliation, that we would be able to go out into this and show what true unity looks like in diversity and the beauty of that, and that you would remind us of this being our future, that there will be no more dividing lines of hostility and that that we will be there all just diverse and ethnic, languages, socioeconomic backgrounds, stories, testimonies, everything. And we will be there. And our future hope is to be there with you, singing together in one voice united about you, Jesus, and the work that you have accomplished and the salvation that you have offered. We ask that you would apply this to our heart. And that over the next coming months that we as a church specifically would be able to work this out and practice it well, that we would have those tough conversations, that we would lean into each other in love so that we could understand each other and move out and show a culture that doesn't know how to to find it, what it looks like to be united in love. We love you and we invite you into this and ask that it would be done for your name and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.